All right, well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing our series in Ephesians that we've been on since the fall. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like to follow along with us, we have some strategically scattered under the chairs. You'll see some black Bibles there. We'll be on page 979 uh, in the black Bible. Page 979, it's Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 9. We're continuing our series called A New Identity, and the premise is that we often think of our identity, think about who we are based on our experiences in life. So you may think about who you are either in reaction to or just in uh, consonance with the way you were brought up, right? Like if, if you were brought up uh, in a positive way, you might just have that positive thoughts about this is who I am, this is who God's made me to be, however you might think about that. Um, or maybe you went through hard things, maybe you were abused or you saw uh, great injustices, you might think of yourself as a, as a victim of some kind. Um, what the scripture says is that, that whether you feel successful or whether you feel like a failure, that we are all on a level playing field, that according to God, we are all universally failures spiritually, that no matter how successful you may feel, that you fall short of the glory of God. That God is perfect, that God is holy, that he's just, he, he loves perfectly. He's the one that always does things right, and we don't measure up to that. So universally, we're all failures. But then there's good news, that's why we call it the good news. Universally, we're all forgiven. So universally, we're all successful. Universally, we're forgiven, we're adopted as his children. And so there's this theme we've been following through Ephesians that we're all on a level playing field. No matter what neighborhood you grew up in, no matter where you come from, you're God's child by faith in him. If you trust in that adoption, if you trust in that forgiveness, you're his. And then what happens is then Paul turns that on our social relationships and he says, then it's got to look like something in the real world, right? We're not just kind of sucked right out of this world into heaven, yet we still live in the brokenness of this world. There's some things that are good. There's some things that are bad. And we are to live in a way that honors God in the ongoing relationships we have here and now. Um, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, so before what we're looking at today, several, several uh, verses back, it says that we're to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So because he loves us, we're to imitate him, we're, we're to be like him. And then it says in 521, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we've said the last few weeks we looked at marriage, we looked at uh, parenting, and now we're, we're looking at the idea of uh, employer-employee relationships and slave and master relationships. The idea is no matter how hard it is, you can actually submit to each other. If you've got a boss, even if he's a jerk, right, you can submit to him because your real boss is Jesus, because he's taking care of you. So Paul is not necessarily saying, and all the institutions and all the terrible things your boss does, those are all great. No, he's just saying where you find yourself, you can honor God in those relationships. So we're going to dig into this a little more, but just recognizing it's a difficult text today. I'm calling this sermon uh, Mastered Today. I kind of went on purpose with the most difficult word I could think of, the, the one that would make us kind of go, ooh, I don't like that, right? As Americans, we don't like to be under authority. It's, it's just in our DNA. We want to be independent. We want to be free. But the text doesn't say uh, you're, you're radically free, therefore live this way. It says actually you're mastered by Jesus. So because he's your true master, then live in this way in your earthly relationships. So in other places, previous parts of Ephesians, it does say we're radically free. We're, we're set free as sons and daughters of God, right? But here, 
So in those difficult moments, recognize you're, you're under the mastery of a good master, of a good king, of a true king. So let's, let's read the text. We're going to read verses 5 through 9, and every translation translates this differently. Because of the difficulty we have with just the, the atrocities of slavery in our culture, right? It, it's, a, it's this terrible thing, this terrible sin that, that we have in our history. And so it makes it hard for us to, to look at the text and, and hear the text the way it would have been understood in the first century context. So in my Bible right here, it says slaves. That's the first word of our section we're going to read this morning. Uh, but in the newer editions of the ESV, the same, the same Bible, they changed their mind a couple of years later and they changed it to bond servants because they said, you know what? When we say slave, people are just going to think in America, they're going to think of race based racist slavery, which was a scandal and which is not really the same thing as first century slavery. First century slavery was, was more like a, just a temporary thing you entered into for financial reasons. And so they decided to shift it to bond servant. And, and we'll explain that more later. But I just wanted to, to say that out loud because I know y'all are reading different translations. And some of them say bond servant. Some of them say servant. Some say slave. So we'll get to that more as we move along. Verse 5 says, slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So that's going to be the theme today. We both have one ultimate master. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we ask for your help. We recognize that that we are fallen, that we uh, tend to be biased. We want to see things our way. And so we ask that you as, as the only good master would show us the way. We ask that you would teach us this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a kid, there was a miniseries, it was quite famous, called Roots. Anybody ever heard of of Roots? Those of you my age or older, you heard of Roots, and the younger ones maybe missed it. Um, So there was this miniseries called Roots, and I just remember my heart being broken as a little kid, seeing some of this stuff on TV, just the abuse of slaves, and starting to come of age, recognizing the the atrocities that had gone on uh, in our country's history. Um, as I got older, I watched the movie Amistad. I don't know if y'all have seen that movie. Um, I just w- was this week kind of preparing for this and looking at different resources, um, talking to my son. My son is right now in school reading Frederick Douglass's narrative of the life of a slave, where that was basically what Frederick Douglass was trying to do. He was trying to say, this is what it's like, and trying to wake up our country to the atrocities. I was watching a, a, a clip from Amistad, the movie about slavery, the other night, and it has just some, some really just horrible scenes of, of the abuse on a slave ship. And I'm watching it on my computer, you know, just watching clips of it, and my wife comes in, and I'm just like, you know, I'm just kind of like all, all grimacing and trying to look away because it's just horrifying. And, and what I want to say up front is the, the reason that translators struggle with how to translate this word is because of that reality. And we need to recognize that up front, and, and that this is almost going to be like two sermons because up front, we, we need to recognize the reason it's hard for us to see that word in the text is because we really do have this terrible history. 
there, there really was this, this terrible institution of, of racist slavery in our history, and we have, to, we have to recognize that. We have to have a shame about that. We have to have repentant hearts about that. We, we need to face that head on. It, it doesn't help anything for you to say, well, it, it wasn't my parents, right? Like, well, my, my parents didn't own any slaves. No, there's, there's an example given to us in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel, basically the holiest man in the Bible, repents of the sins of his people. And so I believe we have an example biblically that as, as God's people, we should be repentant for what happened in our culture and our people. That, that doesn't mean I did it, right? That just means, God, it was wrong. We're, we're confessing people. We're people that say we're, we're sinners, we've fallen, and as a confessing people that recognize that we're fallen, we have to recognize those sins of our own culture as well. No matter, you know, no matter when your parents immigrated here or how your people ended up here, you have to recognize we're, we're all Americans, and as Americans, we have to be sad about that history. We have to recognize that it was a terrible thing and be thankful now uh, that it's illegal, right? And so we need to then wrestle with then how could the Bible seem to be okay with slavery? And, and what I want to argue is, for one thing, it wasn't necessarily okay with slavery. It was speaking into the system as it is. It was like, how do you, how do you deal as a Christian with the system that's in place? But I also want to, I also want to argue that it was a very different system. It, it was not the same as the racist slavery in our history. In both the Old Testament and in first century Rome, now if you, if you study the history of it, there were varying laws in all the different cultures, right, throughout the, the ancient world. But, but the main context here is first century Rome. And it was a temporary situation that you could get out of. You, you could earn your freedom. It, it was more like a contractual obligation that we might enter into today with the hopes of finding some kind of financial gain. And so we have job arrangements like that today in which we wouldn't call ourselves a slave, uh, but it's similar. And so I just want to recognize that slavery in the first century and even in the Old Testament is not the same thing as the racist slavery of our country's history. It's a different, it's a different thing. It's a different institution. So that's why the translators just changed it and said, okay, let's call it bond servant instead of slave. Because if we say slave, everybody in America is going to think of Amistad. Everybody's going to think of roots, right? And it is a different situation, okay? And now, I also want to argue that historically, Christians are the ones that have worked for the abolition of those kinds of institutions that we would say are wrong. And so, in that sense, we have Christianity on our side, but Christians have also argued that it was okay, and we need to recognize that as well. And that's why I wanted to start with that, uh, just drawing us back to Daniel 9, where Daniel says, my my people have sinned, My, my people have done wrong. So, so on one side of history, there were a lot of Christians that argued for the abolition of slavery. Uh, William Wilberforce in England is this great, you know, famous Christian hero that there's been a movie made about him, Amazing Grace. But also recognize, you know what, our people have sinned. Our people have messed up, and we need to have a sad, repentant heart about that. Well, what I want us to, to understand as we look at the text is that Paul is then commanding us uh, from the standpoint of first century Roman slavery which was temporary. It wasn't racist. It was a temporary financial situation. If you look through the New Testament, there's not a lot of commands to hourly wage earners, right? There's not a lot of commands to hourly wage earners because those kinds of jobs weren't as common. Generally, in the first century, you'd either be some kind of slave or bondservant, or you'd own your own business. And so when he's talking to slaves, he's taking the hardest of all those situations. He's taking the worst description of being an employee 
and he's saying, even at its worst, you can be a good employee, okay? And so he has something to say to all of us. So we need to hear what he's saying to us. I wanted to kind of say that uh, up front, that, that we should be repentant of our institutions of slavery. Now we need to listen to what Paul has to say to us. We all work for somebody, or we're a leader who has people working for us, and Paul has specific instructions for employers and employees, and, and that's what he's attacking here uh, in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. The, the first thing that we see from Paul is that he wants our hearts. The, the master wants our hearts, right? We saw this at the end that we're all under one real master, right? There's a real master in heaven, and that master wants our hearts, and Paul starts off saying, then if you're in a position of obedience to someone else, a bondservant, an employee, whatever you want to call it, he says you should work uh, as unto the Lord, is the way it's described in Colossians, that you should give your heart. Look, look at verse 5. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. You see the theme of the heart there. It keeps coming up. He's, he's saying, don't just do it on the outside. It's not uh, the phrase here is uh, eye service or people pleasers, right? You're not like putting up a facade, but you're really giving it your all. Um, and that's difficult. I, I don't know if you have quite the same sinful tendencies that I do, but sometimes when I'm working for a difficult boss, I can have this attitude of, well, I'll, I'll do the bare minimum, but I'm not going to give you my heart, Right? Secretly, I loathe you. Secretly inside, I don't like you. I don't respect you, but I'll, I'll do the minimum. Well, Paul's saying that's, that's not a Christian worker. That's not a Christian employee. A Christian employee actually just gives it his all. A Christian employee gives his heart because you know you're ultimately not entrusting yourself to this earthly master. You're entrusting yourself to the master, the master of everything, the master who proved himself as generous and gracious and forgiving through the cross. And so when we look at him, we say, you know what? I've been, I've been taught not to trust masters in this world. I've had bosses that have let me down. I've had parents that have let me down. I've had friends that have let me down. But I can trust the true king, the true master. And as we entrust ourselves to him, that enables us to then live in these earthly relationships where your, your boss might be a jerk. But you can give them godly, God-glorifying service out of, out of reverence for Christ, right? It says in 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because he's the true leader. He's the true master. We have a core value of sincerity in our culture. Even at our church, I would say we want to be sincere people, right? We want to be real. And so this is a struggle for us because I think we tend to want to obey this in exactly the opposite of how Paul says it right? I, I think we would tend to think, well, then sincerity is telling your master you're a jerk, right? Because um, he's saying, don't, don't do it in a way that's uh, just putting on a facade. And so we're thinking, okay, Paul, you don't want me to fake it. You don't want me to be a people pleaser. You don't want me to just give eye service and uh, put on a mask. So I'll tell him what a jerk he really is, right? That, that must be what Paul is saying. I was thinking about how so often we put on these facades. I had a picture here of a Superman mask. It just reminded me when my, my son was little, we used to love, you know, to, they, or they would love to dress up in different masks and different superhero costumes. And, 
we had one that was kind of like that, I think. It was, it was almost creepy looking because you've got this little kid with like a grown-up face on it. And so you see him in the stroller with this grown-up Superman face. It's kind of startling. Um, but probably at some point in time, you, I know I did, I, I love to put on masks to dress up as something other than who I really was, you know, to pretend I was something maybe better than I really was or stronger than I really was. As we've seen that theme again and again in Ephesians, our, our identity is as children of the king. We, I mean, you can't get any better than that, right? We, are, we have this inheritance as sons and daughters of the king of the universe, so we don't have to put on a mask. We, we don't have to fake it. And so when he's talking about sincerity, when he says that he wants our hearts and he wants us to serve our employer with our heart and not faking it, he doesn't mean, so tell him what a jerk he is. He means almost like an, an act of worship. You're, you're entrusting yourself to the king of the universe as you give your heart to your work, as you give your boss everything you have. So when he says, don't be a people pleaser and don't work with eye service, he's not saying, so therefore, tell him what a jerk he is. No, he's saying, change your heart. You need a new heart. You need a heart that desires to give your best, no matter what a jerk your boss is. So, so change your heart Become the kind of person that has a new identity that realizes that God loves you. The gospel story is that God gave himself for us on the cross. And when we recognize that, that, that changes our, our just fundamental posture in life so that we begin to be able to be risk takers and we begin to be able to give our hearts to things where we used to have to protect them before. And so now we can give ourselves fully to our job and we can work full speed and we can do things with reckless abandon, giving our heart to our employer, our earthly, failed, annoying employer, trusting that really I'm giving it to God. Really, I'm entrusting myself to Him. This is praise. This is, this is My work is art that I'm giving to glorify God. I'm doing this work for Him. I'm giving it to Him as, as an offering. The next thing I want us to think about is that the Master rewards His servants. The master rewards his servants. I've, I, I think if, if you've been here for a while, hopefully I've trained you well enough that you have a basic resistance to uh, the idea of exchange theory in our religious life, right? I've, I've taught you here uh, not to be a legalist, not to be someone who thinks if I keep the laws, then I'll get these certain benefits out of it. I can save myself. I can bring blessing into my life by uh, obeying and doing right things, because we, we've taught again and again that, that none of us can obey that well. None of us can obey perfectly, and show, so we should stop pretending that we can and stop thinking that we can save ourselves through obedience, but that Christ's obedience is what saves us. So that's the foundation. So if, if that's what saves us, if Christ's obedience saves us and we can't save ourselves through our own obedience, what is he talking about here? What does he mean here when he talks about being rewarded for our obedience? Let's look at Verse 8, 6, 8 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. So he's talking about this idea of obeying with fear and trembling, doing it knowing that we'll get a reward. So back in verse 5, he said, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And I, need, I probably need to ex- explain that a little bit too. Uh, it's this idea that kind of goes back again to marriage and the idea of respect in marriage, and then it also went back before that, that all that we do, all submission that we give to any person that's leading us in any kind of relationship, we're doing that ultimately out of 
fear or reverence to Christ. That biblically, fear and reverence are the same thing. So when it says fear and trembling here, it's talking about the sense of awe. Uh, it's not talking about scary movie, movie fear. It's talking about a sense of respect and wonder and awe at who God is. And we are to give that to our earthly employers because God is our ultimate boss. So we're obeying with the sense of awe and reverence that God has given this person uh, to be a leader in my life. And we are to honor them even though they they are a failed leader, right? I mean, we've all had failed bosses that, that don't work that well. And when we do that kind of obedience, when we give that kind of respect, that kind of obedience, we're actually going to be rewarded for it. Because, again, it's, it's, a, it's a reflection of our heart. It's a reflection of our obedience to Christ, that we're trusting Him. Now, I, I would think this can, doesn't need to be mentioned, but I would say, obviously, you know, you're not to follow your boss into breaking commandments, into doing evil things, right? There are, there are limits there. There are obvious biblical limits. But in general, most of us, our bosses, they're just annoying, Right? They just rub us the wrong way. It's not necessarily they're trying to get us to break commandments. They're just not the boss we wish we had. They don't uh, take care of us like we wish they would. And so when we obey them with a sense of reverence and a sense of respect, it's really, again, it's an act of worship that we're giving to Christ. And as we do that and trust our hearts to them, then we're obeying in a way that then we'll be rewarded. And it's not, it's not exchange theory. It's not Another way to describe this is we think that when we do good things, it's like putting quarters in and then God owes us blessing. Talked a lot about this uh, theology that's sometimes called the prosperity gospel that says if you have enough faith or if you give enough money, then God will give you blessings here and now. But the gospel says, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So Jesus promises difficulty here and now and says in the end, in the future, it'll all be made right. So you will have difficulty here and now. Follow me here and now. Trust me here and now, and I will make all things right. And as we do that, then we receive back a reward. There's actual real rewards. The problem is, the thing we don't like is they're just not the, the new cars and the new houses like we wish, right? I mean, we'd prefer the prosperity gospel, but actually the true gospel says our reward are, are these things called fruit. I've got a picture here of a little kid picking apples, um, one of the things our family has loved to do over the years is go fruit picking. I don't know if you've ever done that around, around here. There's some places you can go pick fruit. Um, you can't pick apples. Apples only grow in uh, cold places, I guess. But you can pick peaches and blackberries and things like that in this area. We've done that when we lived in St. Louis. My kids picked apples. But biblically, the, the rewards are often talked about as fruit. So the idea is that you sow these seeds of obedience to God. You sow these seeds of trusting yourself to the true master, and then he rewards you. He sees what you do. You feel like your earthly master doesn't recognize it, right? You're stuck in this dead-end job, and you're frustrated, and nobody's appreciating you. What Paul's saying is that as you obey in a way that's worship to God, as you're creating your art for him, as you're giving yourself to him, he sees, and he'll reward you. He'll, He'll bless you for that. So trust him. Keep trusting him. Keep doing your thing. Keep honoring him with your work, and you will receive back rewards. There will be fruit that comes out of this. If you flip back just a couple of pages in your Bibles to Galatians 5, this reward is described as fruit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's a famous passage that Christians like to quote a lot, and there's this whole contrast set up here by Paul where he's contrasting those who trust in their flesh, right? And so that would look like me trusting in 
my own gifts, my, my strengths, right? I could be trusting maybe in uh, the relationships that I have. I could be trusting in my intellect, right? That I'm smart enough to figure life out. I could be trusting in my job, the respect I have there. I could be trusting in any number of things. I could be trusting in pleasure as the thing that's ultimately going to make me happy. And so the biblical catch-all for that is trusting in the flesh. And Paul contrasts that and says, you, you really need to trust in the Spirit. You need to trust in the Spirit of God to save you. And as you trust in the Spirit and you obey out of that trust, not in a mechanical, I'm putting quarters in so God better bless me, but I just trust that He's good and that He saved me and He's forgiven me. As I trust myself to the Spirit, it says then the fruit of the Spirit will grow in our life. Verse 22, Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul's saying that as you sow into the Spirit, as you trust the Spirit, as you obey Christ, you'll be rewarded. Fruit will grow in your life. And it's not always, again, it's not always the fruit we want, right? Like sometimes we'd just rather have the new car. He says, sorry, I'm going to give you faithfulness. I'm going to give you joy. I'm going to give you peace. So as Christians, what we're saying is that, that that's really what we want. We trust that God is setting things right. We trust there's a future we're headed towards where there's no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. But in the here and now, Christ says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And as we take heart, as we give our heart to him and entrust our heart to him, even if we have a bad boss, even if our work seems underappreciated, we give that to him as an offering, as a sacrifice, as an act of worship. He says, you'll be rewarded. Blessing will return to you. Good things will come to you. The last thing that he tells us is that the master sees everything. Um, this is probably the scariest verse in the whole section, right? Um, it says the master sees everything. Verse 9, flip back over to Ephesians, Ephesians 6. Verse 9 says, masters do the same to them. So he's saying now masters, he's turned the tables He's flipped it. We were talking about people that were under a boss that was a jerk. Now he's flipped it. He said, masters do the same. Have the same good kind of attitude to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He, he sees everything. There is no partiality with him. That word partiality is kind of picking up the theme we were on before with people pleasers and eye service, right? Now he's picking it up with a different word. Partiality is the word for uh, someone who doesn't just judge the face of something, right? And so if I'm a good boss, I can look at uh, deeper things than just what's on the surface. And what we're told is that God is the ultimate boss. He's the perfect boss and he sees the heart. And you'll, you might hear that. That's a biblical theme, right? He doesn't just judge the face, he judges the heart. And so when it says no partiality, it's saying he's not a face judger, he's a heart judger. He sees everything. I have an illustration that I thought might be, might be a little bit of a stretch, but if you can just follow me here. I have a drone here, um, and I know that it's kind of controversial, right? There's all these you know, articles, and um, some of my radical friends from college are worried about drone warfare taking over the world and all this sort of thing. But, but one of the things that we see with drones is, is the ability to see more of the battlefield, right? I've had friends describe to me their, their ability to see on the battlefield someone doing a bad thing who thought nobody could see them because they don't know the drone is above them. And so they can see what's going on. This person thinks they're doing something in secret, 
but they're being seen. Now this, again, the illustration is a little bit of a jump. So, you know, God's not a drone flying around the sky, right? But, but he can see everything. I mean, he can see everything. He, he sees it all. So I'll, I'll take the picture away so we're not distracted. He, he can see it all. There, there's nothing that we do that God doesn't see. He is omniscient. You know, I mean, when you think about drones, we have this ability to see more than we can even process now. Our, our military is unable to even process all the information that, that comes in. There's so much that we can see, we can't even handle it all. But God, God can process everything he sees, and he sees it all. And so it's utterly horrifying, right? But it's also the thing that should be a motivator for us to recognize that he's ultimately the one we're trying to please. And we're told in Hebrews that the only way to please him is by faith. We can't please him by just digging in and trying harder. Because again, universally, we're, we're all failures. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We need Jesus' perfect obedience to be able to please God. And then as we do our daily work, whatever it may be, we're giving that work to him as an act of worship. We're recognizing Jesus is ultimately the one that pleases God. And so, God, here's my finger painting. Here's my, here's my work for today. I know that you're pleased in me because of Jesus, not because of how awesome I am. So that frees us up to take our daily work, no matter who we work for, and to give it as an offering to God, knowing that he sees everything. And Paul uses this to then turn the tables and say, masters, you need to remember that he sees everything too. If you're an earthly master, if you're a boss, if you have anyone that is under your authority, which in some way is almost all of us, we have someone that looks up to us. We have someone that answers to us. We have someone that we lead. He says, know that you too have to answer to the true boss in heaven. He knows everything. He sees everything. So don't threaten, but give your heart. The contrast here is stop threatening. He's saying, masters, don't threaten people. He's saying, in the same way, follow the same pattern that I just laid out for you with the servants. And the servants are to worship uh, with their work. The servants are to give their heart with their work. He's saying, same thing for you, masters. Give your heart. Recognizing, recognize that you lead because really you're being led by the perfect master in heaven, the master that's taking care of everything for us. One of the most humbling things about working here at this church, we've been here almost seven years now. And so as the lead pastor of this church, I've gotten to work with some incredible leaders that have moved in and out of our congregation, some that are still here, but a lot of them have been here for a while and left. And it's been so humbling that I regularly get to work for leaders who are much better leaders than I am. And in their graciousness, in their work as servant leaders, they bless me in being gracious and in serving me and in being honorable towards me. They help me to grow a little bit by baby steps and become a better leader. I want to encourage you that no matter where you are, if you're in the position of serving or you're in the position of leading, God can use that work to give glory to him. God can use you wherever he places you for his glory. That, that's his design. Acts 17 says he determines the times and the places in which we live. And I know it's a, a sad thing for a lot of you, but God sent you here on purpose. God, God wants you here. It's, it's God's will for you to be here. He wants to use you for his glory, to reflect to the world his servant leadership. Jesus makes it real clear in the Gospels that real leadership is being a servant. And so here in the text, we have clearly that those who are servants, you're really serving Christ. So when you are serving your earthly master, recognize you're really serving Christ. And so do it with all you've got. Give your heart to it. And if you're a leader, recognize also you 
you're really serving Christ. You're really not in charge of much. Really, God's in charge. You have a stewardship, and you're serving Christ with your leadership. So no matter who we are or where we are, it's an opportunity to serve the true master. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your grace to us in sending us Jesus. And God, I just pray that you would help us to be a transformed community, that we would take the opportunities for leadership that you give us as, as a temporary stewardship to be used for you, that we would be servant leaders that would follow Christ's example, that we would be those who lay down our life for others, that we would give ourselves to help others to be better. God, I pray that that would apply to us whether we are servants or leaders.